Uh, if you're visiting today, we are looking at the uh, book of Romans, and there's a reason for it, and maybe the best way to, if you're visiting for the first time, to kind of catch you up to speed, if you've ever done a crossword puzzle, maybe you were given a crossword puzzle at Christmas, and you got a thousand pieces, and you spend a day, or you spend a week, or you spend a month uh, trying to get that crossword puzzle together, you know, and you get them all together, and uh, there's a thousand piece puzzle, and you have 999 pieces. And so you're missing that one piece, so you can't really frame it. And, uh, and so that piece is very important. Well, the book of Romans, as it were, is that piece for the Bible. Uh, you can understand the Bible apart from the book of Romans. Of course, uh, God wanted Romans written, so he raised up Paul to write the book of Romans. But the reason the book of Romans is so important, it is the apologetic for the Christian faith. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you really want to understand what the gospel is all about, you really ought to study the book of Romans. So that's what we've been doing. Now Paul tells us uh, earlier uh, in the chapter, uh, this man who hated the gospel at one time now talks about the gospel of God. It's good news, it's what God has done. And he says, you know, I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the salvation of God unto the Jew first and to the Gentiles. And he says, for in the gospel, for in the gospel, there's what everybody needs in this room if you don't have it. And that is a righteousness that comes from God. It is not one you can establish for yourself. It is one that came to Paul when he met Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus to have Christians killed. Now, do you have that righteousness? Are you seeking to establish a righteousness of your own and therefore there's no power in your life? There's no joy. There's no proclamation of the gospel because you see, Paul writes Romans and he says, I'm on my way to Spain at the end of the book, the uttermost part of the earth, because apart from the gospel of Christ, there is no righteousness. And my friends, I will tell you, if you're not a Christian, you need a righteousness from God. So let's uh, turn to our text this morning. Paul is trying to establish in chapter 1, well, what about those who've never heard? That sounds great, Hal, but what about those who've never heard? Maybe that has kept you from the gospel. And Paul says they're guilty. They're guilty. And then chapter 2, what about the Jews who've heard? He says, well, they're guilty with the law. Chapter 3, well, what do we conclude? That all men, everyone, Jew and Gentile, they're all guilty. And they need a righteousness that comes from God. So let's uh, read this text again. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In claiming to be wise, they became fools. And who's he speaking of with the day? I mean, they, they, all of us, mankind. 
For, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error, for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would give grace both to the hearer and the preacher. Lord, it is impossible for me to preach apart from your grace, nor them to hear apart from your grace. So, Lord, we stand before you when we ask for your mercy. And we ask it in your name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to conclude uh, with uh, the question that, and the argument that, that Paul answers to the question, well, what about those who've never heard? They've never heard about the God of the Bible. Uh, how can we or God himself con- condemn believers, uh, c- c- condemn those who do not believe in Jesus Christ because they've never heard about him? I heard this argument this weekend. I hear it all the time. And, and in fact, on the surface of it, I think that this is a, I think on the surface it is a legitimate argument. And uh, the conversation went something uh, like this. Uh, you know, I have some friends, and they're not Christians. And they are good people. But they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, God's incarnate. And not only they are they good people, but really they are better than a lot of Christians I know. Nicer, kinder, which is probably true. Uh, they are wonderful people. And um, are you saying to me that if they don't believe the scriptures and they don't believe in the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and don't put their faith in him, that they will not enter into the presence of God? And of course, my, my first thought that I didn't say was, well, do they want God's presence now? I mean, do you want the presence of God? And, and if you really don't want him now, do you really want him, his presence in all of eternity? 
But I understood his consternation, and maybe that's yours this morning. Maybe the reason that you have not bent your knee to Jesus Christ, or maybe if you are a believer, but you're not really buying 100% into submitting your life to him is because you have these questions uh, that arise. Now, I've known this man for uh, about four decades, and he's a smart man. But the problem with the way he reasons is that logic is limited if not flawed. Uh, there, there's no way to be able to get, get all the, the answers, uh, even if you're not flawed, if you're a human being because you're finite uh, in how you come at things. And therefore, uh, what he's doing, and I think what we do when we're not really submitting ourselves to understanding of the gospel fully, is, is life can be traumatic. Our thoughts can be traumatic because on the one hand, we really do want God if he's a person, that he's a just person. That this God that we pray to is a God who actually hears your prayers in the third row and in the fifth row and back over here in the middle. That he's a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That he's infinitely good and he's infinitely just and he's infinitely loving. But you see, that's where the trauma comes in. Because when we begin to think about that, uh, we begin to realize that we're not good, we're not just, we're not right, we're not what we ought to be, and in fact, uh, we're very concerned about God knowing things about who we are at intimate levels, maybe better than we know ourselves. And so verse 21 of our text clearly says that they are without excuse. You, they, you, we as human beings are without excuse. Why? For although we know God, We did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. And we exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped the created thing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so as I spoke with this gentleman... Uh, who's begun to think about these things because he's older and uh, he's grown up church. He's grown up uh, in the South and he's, and, he's, and he's heard these things and he's got them all in his head, but, but he's had time in the last year or two to begin to think through whether he believes these things. And so as he's thinking it through because he finally has time to sit down and think of, of what he should have been thinking about and we should all be thinking about all the time, he comes up with his hitch. But what about those who've never heard? And so I told him, I said, well, you know, the whole Bible is not about us. It's about our need for a mediator, and it's about Christ. And and, and so the Bible teaches, the whole revelation, of course, Romans teaches, that this righteousness that we need comes from God in Jesus Christ. And so my question to you would be, okay, if wherever you stand in your Christian faith, If men could be good, if these people that had a name that you mentioned could be justified by their own works, then what is the point of the cross? Why why did Christ come? Why is there God naked upon the cross 2,000 years ago if it's just okay that uh, there there, there are other ways to be justified and to live in the presence of God? Didn't have an answer for that. 
And he's pondering that. And I would like for you to pray for this person who I don't know if they're a believer or not, but they're certainly, they're certainly thinking about it. In fact, I'd say until you think about it, you'll probably never be a Christian. You'll just be a behavior, not a believer. But what I want us to look at is what about those who reject this gospel, this truth? Uh, and again, the assumption is that there are people who have never heard. And of course, our text tells us they do. And so here's what I want us to look at before we come to the Lord's table. That if we reject God who has revealed himself in nature and in the scripture, in time and history, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and was raised uh, from the dead and is coming again, then here's what I want us to see, is that you will become less human versus more like God whose image we're created in, and he wants to redeem our humanity. Now let me ask you a Christian first. If you're a professing believer, are you becoming more like God? You're a Christian. And of course we have this list that we're going to look at later about being an implacable person. Insolent. Boastful, arrogant, and of course a lot of us want to look at the one that talks about homosexuality versus getting to those. Or are you becoming one who is more patient because you're starting to get it that God is patient with you in your sin, that God is long-suffering, that God is kind, that God is infinitely loving and and his mercies are new every day. Have you seen your sin enough to where you lean upon God and he is there and he holds for you in such a way that you're becoming like him? Or, professing Christian, are you becoming more like the devil? That your life doesn't center around Christ and thus other people and the needs of other people. Your life centers around you. And you begin, as our title says, to attain the things you desire. It's God giving you over to your desires. And then my question to you, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then, the, then how, how do you define who you are? How do you define what it means to be human? Do terms like kindness and love and mercy, do they come from the dirt? Do they come from an impersonal God who has no name? Now, that's what I want us to look at. Now, Paul is telling us along with the rest of the Bible, is that the human race is in ruins. Now, I don't have this in my notes, but I I was reading an article of a good friend of mine early this morning, very early, a guy named Peter Jones, who's been writing uh, about his concern about our whole culture moving away from distinctions of creator-creature. It's now in our civil governments. It's now everywhere that there are no distinctions, that uh, everything is a oneness. And uh, when you begin to make distinctions between creator and creature, then basically you end up causing divisions versus becoming one. But you see, uh, Paul is saying, no, the human race is in ruins because we have sinned against the creator as creatures. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, not C.S. Lewis, but G.K. Chesterton, I know I've quoted him many times. He was a Roman Catholic journalist who wrote at the turn of the century, I think wrote the Father Brown series. But this is what he said uh, about uh, man's sin. He said, you know, modern man likes uh, uh, 
to have empirical evidence. He wants to look at the data and be objective about the data. And he said that the only empirical evidence that no civilization can refute is that men are depraved. There's your empirical evidence. You look around, what about human beings? Are they good or are they not good? And so he says this is why society is constantly looking for utopias, right? But he also went on to say this, that uh, when we uh, leave off the search for God, then ultimately the state becomes God. And so Paul is saying that there's implications uh, from our ruin. And, uh, and that in the Tower of Babel, you have man who is still rejecting God after the flood. Man, man's going to pull it all together. He's going to create a name for himself. And, uh, and so man in his sin, God comes down and he, and he scatters uh, men. So, so what Paul is saying here is that what happens when men are given over, they refuse to admit their ruin. They refuse to come to the very God this morning, if you're not a believer, who would gladly, freely forgive you of your sins, but refuse to come. He says you're given over to two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. So, I want us to look at that. The first thing is that we see man's ruin in his rejection of God. Okay, what is godlessness? godlessness? Godlessness is that you won't you don't want God to run your life. I mean, I'm serious. If you're a Christian and you're not going to the cross and you're you're not you're wanting to run your own life, that is godlessness. It's not like you're a bad person. It's not like you're out there doing these terrible things. You you're just you just want to go to the ball game. You just want to wake up in the morning and read the paper. And so Paul addresses Man's ruin in, ruin in his rejection of God. Verse 22, he says, Claiming uh, to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so that, you see, that's the first rejection. is the rejection of God. And then in a moment, we're going to see man's ruin Ruin in his substitution for God. So he's rejecting God, and then we're going to see what happens when you do that, and you're substituting something other than the true and living God. So, why do men reject God? Well, why do men hate God? I mean, it really does seem, doesn't it, though, that, that, that here we have the God of the Bible is a God who's merciful. He is a God who is so loving that he sends his own son for people who can't make it on their own. For people who can't stand before his bar of justice. A God that you can talk to. A God who promises to be here with us this morning through the preaching of the word and when we take the Lord's table. A God who promises that if you'll just clear out the cobwebs that he would be with you uh, this morning. Why is that? You know, uh, R.C. Sproul, who's a great theologian, I might have quoted him last week, but here's what he says about that. He says, The New Testament maintains that unbelief is generated not so much by intellectual causes as by moral 
and psychological ones. The problem is not that there is sufficient evidence to convince rational beings that there is a God, but that rational beings have a natural antipathy to the being of God. In a word, the nature of God, the Christian God, is repugnant to man and is not the focus of desire or wish projection. Man's desire is not that the triune God exists, but that he doesn't. Don't you remember that when you were a kid? I remember that growing up in church. I remember hearing about doing the catechism questions, and, and I can remember before I knew Jesus Christ, I wish that God didn't exist. And the reason I wish he didn't exist is for, for several reasons. It was, one is because, you know, the Bible teaches about God, the true and living God, that he's absolutely sovereign. That if you're a Christian then you know what? Your whole life is to be given to him. You're, 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 it's not, it's, there's not a democracy where you're getting a vote with God about what you want to do with your life. He's the king of the universe. He speaks and the world comes into existence. And um, we would rather be autonomous, autonomous, a law unto ourselves. Y'all know, I'm, I'm talking to Christians as well, right? The idea that God keeps coming in and God keeps coming in But not only that, but he's omniscient. God, listen, let me tell you what God knows about you. Everything you did this week. He knows everything you're going to do next week. He knows the very day that you're going to die. God knows all things because you see, if he didn't know all things, he'd cease to be God. Well, what God are we talking about? The one the Bible teaches, which is God, who's revealed himself. Um. Sartre did not like the idea of God uh, being omniscient. He called him the voyeuristic God. And he described it as, as I'm looking through the keyhole at somebody that doesn't see me. He's looking through the keyhole, looking at me, being voyeuristic. And you see, that's... uh, And so, in a lot of ways, just to be practical, a lot of us really want to be known, don't we? We, we? We really... We don't want to be ignored. We want, we want people to know who we are. We want to have an identity. And at the same time, we don't want to be known. We're afraid for people to get too close, right? Because then they might discover who we really are. This is why husbands and wives sometimes begin to separate and not be connected. You know why? Because it's scary to be known that name. And so men suppress <coughs> the truth. And another reason, I could give you all the attributes of God, but let me tell you another reason. God is love. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his love. And uh, that means if he could love any more or any less, if he's chosen to love you, there's nothing you're going to do to outdo that love. He loves his people. He will always love his people. But have you ever thought about how, in a way, someone's love for you is more demanding than anything? When you realize that person keeps loving you and keeps loving you, how can you not respond to that? It would show your own inhumanity. Not to respond to a spouse who's going to love you no matter what. You know what? I'm going to love you no matter what. And so we are very uncomfortable uh, with this. And so, that's, and so what is man's rejection? Well, he, he exchanges the truth for a lie and worships the created thing rather than the creator. I guess it's got a few minutes, but I need to look at that to get real practical here. Man's ruin in his rejection of God, but we also see man's ruin in his substitutions for God. 
Notice what he says in verse 24. Therefore, because we want to suppress truth, not really know this God, it says he gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You know, let me tell you what it means here, this word that says he gave them up to their lust, to their lust. It's the same kind of concept of desiring God, but you're not desiring God. God is letting you desire all those things that are created. And the word literally uh, means, epitheme means uh, hyper-desires. That God gives you over to your hyper-desires. So how does the wrath of God be? How is it revealed? How is God's wrath revealed? Through a thunderbolt? Now this is what John Stott, who is a wonderful Anglican minister, says. We think of God's wrath, we usually think of thunderbolts from heaven and earthly cataclysms and flaming majesty. Instead, his anger goes quietly and invisible to work in handing sinners over to themselves. You see, God's wrath is not uh, he's flying off the handle. God's wrath is he's letting you have exactly uh, what you want and so what happens when we, uh, 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 instead of God being our God and submitting ourselves, and he hands us over, what does he hand us over to? He hands you over to your idols. And what are your idols? They're the things that your flesh longs after. And we looked at this last week, and we could go through this whole list. But you know, he talks about sexual desires. In fact, in our text, he talks about homosexuality, and uh, here's what a lot of conservative people like to do. Yes, sir, those homosexuals. Right? And, and I'll tell you what, some of my best friends in college were homosexuals. Some were Christians, and I had other guys. I had a friend of mine, he's married, and he has four kids, and he still struggles with homosexual tendencies. Okay? He's not, he's not out there committing homosexual acts anymore than you should if you're heterosexual and you're fornicating or you're committing adultery. Okay? But the whole, but, but the whole point, of, I think, of being handed over to homosexuality is Paul's really getting at the futility of our thinking and being darkened in our understanding, and he's pointing right back to the creative ordinance. We got everything backwards. In fact, the word pervert in, 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 the, uh, in the Greek means to reverse things. Everything's reversed. But couldn't we say that about our order in terms of how we relate to each other as men and women? Or how we relate to each other as husbands and wives? And so what God does, he hands you over to your own desires. And, uh, and if your desires are sex, he hands you over to that. That's why some of you are uh, hooked on pornography. It's what I want. And then God says, well, you know, no, you don't want to do that. And he tries to block and block and block. And then eventually you go, no, this is what I want. I don't want you. I want this. And he hands you over. Or, uh, or, and we talked about this last week, it could be money. The reason that some of you don't give is because you see money is the thing that you must have. 
And those are what the idols are. It's your job. It's your reputation. It is uh, your, your health or whatever it may be. If, if you're, we talked last week about it. If you're a woman and you want to be beautiful, then you're given over to your beauty. And even if you keep it for a long time, it eventually goes away. And so your whole life is around beauty and around counting calories and, and around, uh, it maybe it's not beauty, maybe it's exercise and health. And so you're much more disciplined about that than you are knowing God. But it becomes bondage to you, and that is the wrath of God. And so what happens in our relationships with other people? I, I mean, I could go through this whole list about being handed over, getting what you want. You young kids, trust me. What do you want? Trust me, those things can be the very things that take you completely away from the very presence and knowledge of God. And then you're deceived. Just ask some older people who didn't learn early what it means to submit to the reign of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, you know, I don't really have a problem in the sexual area. Well, you know, I don't have time to go down 27 sins past that. But there are 27 in here. And he's trying to give a depiction of mankind. Okay, so you don't struggle with homosexuality. And you've always been faithful to your husband or wife even though you don't like him at all. And like God said, okay, good, you know. And it's good, I mean, it's good that you don't go out and have affairs, trust me. Because you that have had them in here, you know the, the damage that it brings. And, you, and hopefully you know the mercy and love of God when he welcomes you back into the fold. But let me go through these things for you church lady type people. You older brothers. He talks about gossips. To whisper things. That's what the word in the Greek means. You say things. You're spreading rumors about people. You say it privately. And that's horrible. He says uh, you're slanderers. That's when you do it out in public. You do it in public. You just say stuff about, about people in public. And you defame people. Then he says you're insolent. Uh, and the Greeks thought this was the greatest flaw. You know, it is setting yourself up against God. That's what it means to be insolent. I'll run my life. I'll go to church, but I'm running my life. That's insolent. Arrogant, which is the feeling of personal superiority. Now, I got to say this. Some of you are arrogant about church. You have a love view of the church. Uh, it's always amazing to me when we get people to stand and we always about have half the people here you know when we stand for a kid to get baptized you know why because some of you go well, I don't really want to go to church today that guy playing the guitar does Andrew, uh, Andrew uh, Terrell he's there every Sunday you know why because he's ministering and, uh, but it's a, form of, it's a form of arrogance to not give to the church you decide on who you're going to give to you don't give the body of Christ you don't give yourself to the body of Christ. You don't need to be involved with small groups. You don't need to be, you don't need to be here. I'm telling you that the wrath of God is coming against such attitudes. And then, uh, and then uh, I, there's the heartless one. I, I will close on this one then, and then we'll uh, give you an illustration in with the gospel. But, but you know what heartless means? The word in the King James is implacable. And that means you're, you're, you will not Forgive people. You will not forgive. And you know why you won't forgive? Because that's what humans are like apart from knowing Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. 
Um, is your desire to know God or to be ignored by Him? Well, again, well, why do people, you mean there are people that aren't going to be in heaven that don't believe in Jesus Christ? Well, the fact of the matter is, if you don't want God in your life, you don't want Him running your life now, you sure don't want to go to heaven. Go read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. But there's good news here. It really comes in chapter 3. I could just leave it right here. You go, man, this is a heavy sermon. Well, you're heavy sinners just like me. And you need a heavy Savior who can do heavy lifting on your behalf. You need a Savior. And it's the triune God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who didn't do any of these things. But He loved us and His Father perfectly. And then 2,000 years ago, he was crucified on our behalf because all the sin of all those who would look to Jesus, your insolent implacability, not, not just from last week, but the ones you're going to commit two weeks from now, was placed on Jesus Christ. And he took the wrath of God. Uh, John gave me a good illustration to end with. Uh, I was going to use another one. Yours is better. He said, man, I heard a good illustration. I said, great, I'm using it this morning. But I've heard it before. And I, I heard that there was a, there, there was a guy that was uh, out in a field and the field caught on fire and he was an outdoorsman and he couldn't un- outrun the fire. The fire was going to consume him. So what he did was he began a fire right around him and it burned out from him and it, it burned up the wrath that was coming. It's called the scorched earth theory. We see Christ has come on our behalf. And uh, he, as it were, was lit up on our behalf so the wrath of God would not come upon us. I beg you in the name of Christ, if you're a sinner and you're willing to go, man, I'm all those, God, would you have mercy upon me? Let me tell you, he is the one. You're the one who he will forgive. Come to him, look to him. He, he loves, God is loving and merciful. He's incredible. And for, for the question about, well, what about those who've never heard? We've already talked about this. They know. You know. But those who will come are those who receive grace. If you're experiencing God's grace this morning, come to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, we thank you for the gospel in a picture here. We've heard it, it's true. Uh, Lord, we're weak in faith, so you've given us a victory.